The Gist is sponsored by Sherry's Berries. Treat your mom to something sweet this Mother's Day with a gift from Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate start at $19.99. Visit berries.com, click on the microphone, and use the code GIST. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com and the promo code GIST. It's Thursday, April 30th, 2015 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pasca. Hi, it's Mike. Still Mike, but there's Mike in the back of a car heading to MSNBC. I had to leave a little early to go do a TV show, but I just saw something that needed to go into the gist. So I'm interrupting my normal intro to tell you this news. So the Mercury Messenger is set to crash into the surface of Mercury, and I found this out. You know that probe, that space probe takes takes a lot of pictures? The Mercury Messenger? Messenger is actually an acronym. Are you ready? Here's what it stands for. Mercury, the M-E, the first two letters of Mercury, surface, space, environment, the first two letters of environment, E-N, geochemistry, G-E, and that's Messenger. All right. That is not an acronym. That is the worst acronym ever. Did you know that GIST is an acronym? It says, go, Mike, and it takes the I in Mike, state things, S-T. Or it could be the the S and the T from state and the T from things. Either way, even America is an acronym. It stands for a majestic A. M. environment. Now you take the E from environment and the R from environment. If... Taking the I, you can, don't take either of those letters, afford A and it. America stands for a majestic environment if you can afford it. No, it doesn't. That's a terrible acronym. And so is the Mercury Messenger. On the show today, all right, you don't want to hear me with this audio quality. Let's head back to the studio. I'll tell you what's on the show today. Recently retired Congressman Barney Frank is on the show. And in the spiel, pre-dawn raids. But first, here now, former Massachusetts Congressman Barney Frank. Frank is the name of the book. Barty Frank is the author. Hello, welcome. Thank you. Glad to be here. Mitt Romney. Now, you worked with him when he was governor of the state you represented in Congress. Did the ways he changed in running for president, was that entirely predicted by where the Republican Party is? Or Absolutely. He's a man of absolutely no principle. He ran for the United... He looked... He just felt that he was destined to be president. He was doing nothing but that for 20 years. He ran in 1996 for the United States Senate against Ted Kennedy, at which point uh, he implausibly argued, or maybe it was 94, that he was in fact going to be a better supporter of gay rights than Senator Kennedy. It was nonsense on its face, but um, that's what he said because he thought that's how he could get elected at that point. A few years later, when he is governor, uh, and Massachusetts, the Supreme Judicial Court of Massachusetts says same-sex marriage is allowed. The major political effort Mitt Romney put into his governorship was an effort to abolish same-sex marriage in Massachusetts, overturn the Supreme Court decision, because he saw that as the way for him to become president of the United States, namely by impressing the Republicans with how anti-gay he could be. But you have to, and to relate this back to you, but you have to serve a constituency. This is one thing a politician has to do. And you've written, yes. in, you've written in your book how you didn't think many other members of the Democratic caucus were anti-gay, but you knew their constituents were. So they, for, for different reasons, couldn't come out in favor of gay rights. Well, your constituency, it's a very liberal one. What if you were serving a different constituency? Would you have stayed in the closet longer? Would some of your positions maybe no, have changed? No, I wouldn't have stayed in the Congress longer. Nobody has to be a congressman. That's I understand... Look, I would say this. 
me would be if you can do what you believe ideologically is the right thing most of the time, then of course you compromise some of the time. But if you're in a f- constituency that's fundamentally out of sync with you, go do something else. I mean, no, nobody has to be an elected official. So, yeah, uh, you, you're not going to find it any district anywhere where there's a perfect congruence, but if there is not a central harmony, then uh, if you can't be what you want to be most of the time, then you shouldn't be in the job. Give me your a compromise that you found pretty easy to deal with and maybe a compromise that you really struggled with. In 2007, we had a Democratic majority for the first time since 1995. And um, we had the votes, we thought, to pass a bill banning discrimination in employment against lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people. Nancy Pelosi was speaker, the, the, the most important 100% support of LGBT rights we've ever had, and uh, I was her lieutenant in this. And when we started counting the votes, we found to our dismay that there were not enough votes to get the bill passed with full protection for transgender people involved. We decided that this was a case where getting most of what we wanted, providing protection for most people, was important, and that this would have made the groundwork for going forward, and that it would, in fact, be easier to, a couple years later, get the rest of it done. Uh, Many transgender people were very angry about that. And uh, uh, I looked to the Civil Rights Movement, because what they did in the Civil Rights Movement, 1964 Civil Rights Bill, included much of what the African-American community wanted, but it didn't have voting rights. Um, You never get all of it at once. That was a very painful one. Uh, fortunately, since then, we have all worked together so that the American public, I think, now is much better educated about transgender issues uh, uh, recently on TV and elsewhere. So I don't think we'd have to have that kind of, uh, we wouldn't have to have that kind of problem again. The compromises that were easier, um, those are the, some of the ones I had to make in the uh, financial reform bill. Because in that situation, everything we did was getting, was doing better. In some cases, we weren't getting better enough. I'll give you a, I wanted to have a situation where it would be illegal for a company that you were investing with to make you sign a contract that you could never sue them, that you had to go to an arbitration process, which is very much rigged in favor of the company. Mm-hmm. And we said in the House that they couldn't do that. The Senate didn't want to do it. We settled on giving the Securities Exchange Commission the authority to order that. That was a case where nothing was getting worse. It was, uh, it was a compromise that made it likely that I would get what I want didn't get what I want. So that's the kind of compromise where you, where, where you go part of the way towards what you want. You know, I think about one political compromise or maybe just a compromise in terms of stating a position you don't really have. I do not believe, I never believed that President Obama was actually against gay marriage at any time. If you study the man and if you know... Of course he wasn't. He, oh, thank you. So we both agree. But I think that it was probably prudent politics. I to advise s- him to do that, absolutely. But here's the deal. And I, you have to take this into account. True, he is same as true of Hillary Clinton. They were not for John Kerry. They were not for same sex marriage. On the other hand, they did vote, all three of them, as United States senators, against every measure that came up while they were there that would have retarded same sex marriage. John Kerry was there and voted against the Defense of Marriage Act. He said, I'm not for marriage, but I, I, I don't want to you know, penalize people who do it. In 2004, George Bush, after Massachusetts, court voted for same-sex marriage, George Bush put in a constitutional amendment that would not only have said no further same-sex marriages, it would have retroactively wiped out the ones we'd already had in Massachusetts. And all of them, uh, John Kerry, 
Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton, all then in the Senate, voted against that constitutional amendment. So yes, they did say in the end we're not going to be for that, you know, as a yes or no issue. But they were already there every time we needed them to help us block the efforts to undo it. Yeah. You're a gay rights champion, and I've heard your speeches many times. I also watch C-SPAN a lot, where someone talks to the empty floor floor of Congress. And I wonder, has a congressman or senator ever come up to you and said, you changed my mind on that the way, because of what you said? Yeah. I'll give you one example. An African-American member with whom I am very close, I obviously won't give his name, uh, I, 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 he told me that I helped him change his mind on uh, uh, same-sex marriage. As I say in my book, one of the, the earliest causes to which I was attracted was, was racism uh, from the time I was 14. I was for fighting against racism at a time when I thought it was not even possible to fight against homophobia. And I'm very proud of my record in that regard. I went to Mississippi in the summer of 64 for the Freedom Summer. And we talked about this, and we talked about the religious objections, and we talked on a very personal level. In fact, two, two African-American members made a point of telling me that I was uh, very influential in, in changing their their minds, and I'll give you one other example, which which really uh, touches me deeply. I was the main sponsor of the bill to have America apologize to Japanese Americans for rounding them up and putting them in concentration camps during World War II, and we also paid them a ten thousand dollar compensation. But the the apology was very important. Norman Minetto was a Japanese American congressman, went on to be Secretary of Transportation. He had been interned himself when he was ten years old. And uh, a couple years after we got that bill passed, and I was the chairman of the subcommittee and the major sponsor, the Japanese-American Citizens League was, uh, somebody proposed that they support same-sex marriage. This was early on in the early 90s. And it was getting some opposition. He took the floor and he said, listen, it was a gay man who delivered the most important thing we wanted, which was an apology for the way we were mistreated. Don't tell me we're going to turn our backs on him. And uh, they became the first straight organization to endorse same-sex marriage. Hmm. I want to ask you one other aspect about marriage. I, you know, to me, there is no issue. I think to many Americans, I mean, I think gay people should be allowed to marry just as much as brown-haired people should be allowed to marry blondes, right? And I think there should be the debate about gay rights as much as the rights of people with earlobes that attach to their faces or don't. Fine. But I wonder, you know, does everyone have to be on board with me in exactly the same time I am. Some people are slower to the issue. And I think about things like the uh, CEO of Mozilla, Brendan Eich, was essentially, you know, forced from his post when it came out that he had donated against the California initiative attempting to ban same-sex marriage. I think about this pizza store in Indiana where, all right, they don't want to serve pizza at a gay wedding, and that seems wrong and discriminatory, yet what if I was running a business and Scientologists wanted to have some ceremony, and I objected to that. So I guess the question is, you know, have you given thought to how much accommodation should we give to yes. the people who aren't on board with us right now in the exact first, way that we are? Let me ask you a question first. Yeah. Suppose it was race and not That's LGBT. right. Okay. It's a little more... It's That's a good question, and it's complicated, and I would no, say... Isn't. Well, I would say part of it is that the racial aspect is literally written into the law, whereas, especially in Indiana, uh, homosexuality is not oh, a protected oh, but class. but I think... If you'll forgive me, that's a bit of a dodge because we're talking about your personal, <laughs> right. not the legal obligation. Of, it is not written into the law that you can't be the CEO of Mozilla if you're a bigot, not yeah. race. Yeah. Here's a distinction I would make. In your personal capacity, you have every right to be as bigoted or generous as you want to be. You're any gay, don't hang with me, don't invite me to dinner. Uh, that's your business. But when you get the 
enabling from society to open a business, and this has been the common law for a long time, because, and here you know, we get this debate, is this individual or not, you can't open a business without being protected by the law, the law of incorporation. Zoning laws may mean that you get to do a business and somebody else doesn't get to do a business. So you have always had the obligation in your business capacity to serve any well-behaved customer. And I think that is very important. By the way, that's why the business community in Indiana and elsewhere is saying, keep your discriminatory feelings out of my business. I don't want to have to pick and choose. I don't want to be boycotted by one group if I do serve and, and, and another group if I don't. And so my answer is where you are talking about commercial relationships, no, you are not allowed to act on your prejudices. You've got to offer your service to anybody who is well-behaved. Yeah. In your personal capacity, you don't have to do that. I could live with that. Very last question I have for you is a two-parter. So your marketing materials promise this is the autobiography of America's smartest, feistiest, and funniest politician. The Boston Globe characterizes your remarks as oftentimes acerbic, calls it bullying put-downs. But I want to ask about zingers and wit. Do you have one that you're particularly proud of, and do you have one that might have been lacerating but you wish you could have back? Uh, I'm proudest of two. One... Reagan comes to office and wants to outlaw all abortions and then has an agenda of cutting back every program that helps poor children and the mothers of poor children. And I said that apparently from the standpoint of Ronald Reagan, government should consider that life begins at conception but ends at birth. And I know that that influenced a couple of conservative Republicans, genuine, true believers in anti-abortion, who then frankly told me, you, you know, you got to me on that, and we're going to do more to uh, help people. The other one was... Uh, it came to me spontaneously. I was listening to Ralph Nader, who the tragedy of Ralph Nader's helping like George Bush over Al Gore was twofold. One, that we got George Bush instead of Gore. But two, that Nader, who had been a very useful guy for most of his life, so discredited himself with so many people then that he never became, he, he's lost his impact. And we were debating something, and he was making these very unrealistic demands that we do something that wasn't possible. And I, I told him that he was luxuriating in the purity of his irrelevance. Mm-hmm. As far as uh, things I wish I hadn't said, uh, I guess it was with Michael Dukakis. Uh, I apologize in the book for getting too angry at him. I admire Michael greatly. But uh, he, he made a big point when he was governor. Not a big point. It's who he is. He would take the subway to work as governor. And someone said to me when I was very angry at him, well, are you saying that you, uh, you know, don't you admire him for taking the subway to work? And I said, well, I, I have no objection to his taking the subway to work. I just wish he didn't get off at the state house." <laughs> but then, I mean, it was a mistake to say that I didn't want him to be governor because I came up, I wound up with words. That was a mistake I learned from. All right. Frank is the name of the book. Barney Frank is the name of the man. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. It was a good talk. You love your mom and you want to respect your mom's wishes. But, you know, sometimes you have to ignore your mom to do what's best for your mom by, say, giving her delicious chocolate. All right. You feel a little guilty. Mom says, I don't want chocolate for Mother's Day what to do inside that chocolate, inside that delicious chocolate coating, give a berry. Who doesn't want a berry? Maybe your mom's the type that doesn't want a berry. She's like, a berry? That's where the chocolate comes in. That's what the chocolate's for, mom. Mom wants a berry, and she wants Shari's berries. Shari's berries for $19.99 will ship across the country giant, freshly dipped strawberries. And that $19.99 price is over a 40% savings. What kind of flavors? Chocolate chip, nuts, decorative swizzles are involved. You choose from berries or cake truffles or brownie pops or pretzels and more. 
It's cool to get food in the mail, food that is fresh. So here's how to do it. You get the amazing deal, freshly dipped strawberries or any of those other things starting at $19.99. It's for my listeners only when you use the code the gist when you go to berries.com. I'll spell it for you. B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. C-O-M. Click on the microphone in the top right corner. Type in gist. Go to berries.com. Click on the microphone and enter my code, gist. And now the spiel. The Raiders are on the clock. The pre-dawn raid. That is the best kind of raid. Pre-dawn has been a staple of raids and news coverage of raids since there's been a raiding going on. In the Bible, in Genesis, on the fourth day, God created the sun. But on the first day, he created earth and the grass and the, the animals and all that stuff. So you, you could argue that everything we see around us is all a sort of pre-dawn raid. I always thought the pre-dawnedness of the raid, the fact that this was notable, it was just a stand-in for badass. You know, like us, us regular people, us people who, when the elevator's not coming, respond by pushing the button a little harder. You know, us lazy bones. We listen to the pre-dawn raid, and we think, sure, there's danger, sure, there's guns, there might be a meth lab, there might be a terrorist. But just the fact that these servants and soldiers got up, must have gotten up at like 2.45 to get to the house and knock on the door at 4.45, just that they did that in the pre-dawn hours, I just thought that was always pretty impressive. News media agrees. Quiet police cracked down on protesters in a pre-dawn raid in Bahrain's capital, Manama. Noting it's a pre-dawn raid, it shows seriousness of intent or scariness of attack. A pre-dawn raid by insurgents on that city's airport. Or it could connote outrage. Can you believe she was the subject of a pre-dawn raid? A conservative reporter saying the feds in a pre-dawn raid took her files while searching her home. The media says it. The police say it. We conducted a joint pre-dawn raid so we can get some of the bad guys off the streets of Philadelphia. Off the streets or at least out of their beds. At least one time, the specter of pre-dawn raids and having to talk about pre-dawn raids so either spooked or jazzed the reporter that he just got really redundant. Police and these dawn raids have been underway since the early hours of this morning. These pre-dawn raids since the early hours of this morning, this a.m., I never hear about raids at any other hours. You know, you never hear about the raid, which netted seven kidnappers, went down around noon, let's say noonish, or the SEAL team extracted the captives at around seven, six central and mountain. I guess when you're coordinating international excursions or say drone attacks, lots of these drone attacks, they're described as pre-dawn raids like this news item. After a nearly six-month halt in the drone campaign, separate U.S. aerial drones fired missiles at militant hideouts in pre-dawn strikes on Thursday in Waziristan. But here's the thing. When you think about these pre-dawn strikes, sure, the ones they were striking, they got roused with something they didn't expect. But the ones doing the striking, remember, what's the aspect of drones that makes them extra crazy? It could be done from thousands of miles away. In fact, most drone attacks are coordinated out of the Creech Air Force Base in Indian Springs, Nevada. Nevada and Pakistan are 12 hours apart. That raid I was talking about was for the people conducting it behind the controls. That was a dusk raid. The sun was still high in the desert for that one. But sometimes the phrase pre-dawn raid, it's, it's invoked sort of to imply an injustice. I played that part about the woman, the uh, Fox 
report about the woman who was unjustly roused in a pre-dawn raid. And this is from Wall Street Journal. And uh, the columnist Mary Anastasia O'Grady is writing about these terrorists, the FARC terrorists in Colombia. She writes, the pre-dawn execution of 11 Colombian soldiers in the province of Cauca by the Revolutionary Armed Forces of Colombia is shaping up as a defining moment for the president of Colombia. I think she writes about the pre-dawnedness there to emphasize just how terrible these executions were, that these FARC terrorists didn't just kill, but, you know, didn't even let the guys get a good sleep. And in that way, pre-dawn raids are a little like fired over the phone. Like, it seems really bad, but when you think about it, it's the only logical way to do it. We're supposed to get our umbrage up or our dander up over these actions, but I would say that it's The bad thing is like 99.9% getting fired. Same thing with 99.9% of getting raided or attacked by a drone. A little 1%, the fact that it happened before dawn or over the phone. Anyway, I do notice that when the media reports on pre-dawn raids, they they really get their adrenaline flowing and make you offers they just shouldn't make. Eyewitness News is taking you inside the mafia. You can go inside the mafia, but I wouldn't. And if I did, I'd wait till around, I don't know, 12.30, 1. Full stomach. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi regrets the time she told Michael Jackson's llama to beat it. Managing producer Joel Meyer regrets the time he told Michael Dukakis, hey, just get in the tank. What could go wrong? Andy Bowers, executive producer, regrets never having visited Paris with pants on. Go to Facebook.com slash SlateGist or on Twitter at SlateGist. Regrets? The gist has had a few, but then again, we've signed pretty extensive non-disclosure forms. Thanks for listening. This is Josh Levine, host of Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen. On this week's episode, we talk about the upcoming Floyd Mayweather-Manny Pacquiao fight and whether you should boycott it, whether Mayweather's history of domestic violence means that this fight is unwatchable. You should not spend your $100 on it. Uh, you can subscribe to Hang Up and Listen at iTunes.com slash Slate Podcasts.